Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelical X, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. Today's episode is actually a little bit of a personal indulgence, if you will. Uh, a friend of mine, Ed Ehrenberg, who I've known for, well, pretty much the majority of my life, he and I grew up together, uh, known each other for, oh God, over 40 years, and the story of how we met my parents ended up moving in uh, when I was in third grade, and we ended up changing school systems. And if you can remember being in third grade and transitioning over to fourth grade, that's a tough time for a kid. And Ed was one of the first people at my new school to befriend me. And we've been friends ever since and have stayed in touch, even though our lives have gone in really quite divergent directions. I ended up moving out west, going to law school and becoming an attorney. Ed stayed in New York, which is where I'm from originally. So in wake of the fact that New York just passed a recreational marijuana law, I figured, let me touch base with Ed and let's do a little Gen X reminiscence and also see how he feels and what the vibe is in New York. So that's what today's episode is about. It's a little bit about me reminiscing with a friend. It's a little bit about 50 years of reflection about drugs in the U.S. and also what's going on in New York today. So with that, enjoy. There you are. Hello there. What's going on? I was about to record my little intro for today, but then you showed up, so I'll do it later. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'm one minute ahead of schedule. No, no, no. You're fine. You're fine. It's sad that, you know, it takes us uh, having to schedule you on my show for us to talk. <laughs> oh, well, whatever it takes. How have you been? Fucking busy. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, I'm one of the few people who tried to turn pandemic to advantage. So um, had to abandon our office because, uh, you know, who the hell was going to go to an office during a pandemic? So I moved everything to the home and, uh, you know, I had this book that I wrote that I was going to launch before the pandemic and then, you know, the pandemic just killed that. So I published the book with, you know, no book launch, no book tour and figured, okay, let me start a YouTube channel and, and support the book that way. So this is the new monster that's uh, slowly eating me alive. Great. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we kind of took its best advantage of the pandemic as well. Uh, you know, being a digital process, what our company does, uh, it has enabled us to, you know, I won't say it's been uh, the best time to do anything, you know, but we, we have a specific and unique ability to do stuff when people are locked in their houses. So it was good for us in that sense. Yeah. Well, you know, what was the option? Just uh, wallow in anxiety and, and slowly uh, drink and drug yourself to death? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of that went on also, but <laughs> in general, it was just, yeah, I, I, I think so. What what was good for Angie and I were that, you know, and Angela and I got married in uh, in October, 
and now we're finally living together. And so we have this actual office, like, you know, and I'll do like what you did, we're kind of now operating from a, from here, which has been super great for, uh, you know, a little bit of give back from the amount of traveling we used to do and the amount of just, you know, splitting time in Brooklyn and here and multiple houses. So this is better for us. Yeah. Um, I do not envy anybody with a life on the road. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it was rough, man. Although a great friend of ours and one of the, uh, uh, who's our uh, advisory board chair, He's he spent the last six months in a camper on the road, and now he's going back out on the road. He just is back in town for a week or two. Um, we, got, we got to just catch up with him for breakfast. But, I mean, this dude's out there in, like, a crazy souped-up camper, like, just going everywhere, and that's all he's doing. He's having an incredible time with it. You got to be built for that, though. I am I am not built for that. I don't think I am either. <laughs> yeah, so, something about having the same mattress and pillow each night, huge, huge, huge benefit. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. That 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 that's that's been the good thing for us too, because I was really living in like four or five different places up until last March. Yeah, one of, one of my law partners has a very vibrant entertainment law practice, and it's weird. He's got this stable of '80s hair metal bands uh, as clients, and you know, you talk to these guys and you meet these guys, and you know, they were all on the road for years and years touring. Um, they're physical wrecks, man. Just not being in the same place every night will ruin your body. Not just that. I mean, it will, but it's not just that. It's the oh, lifestyle. Yeah. I knew so many people, you know me, and like I knew so many people living the lifestyle. And now it's like, wow, you look very old and battered and maybe not even alive in some cases. So <laughs> <laughs> there's that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is possible Ozzy Osbourne died in the 80s and we just don't know it. Yeah. Um, or or really, like, more specifically, Ozzy doesn't know it. <laughs> right. Well, Ozzy is like the sort of high watermark for that or maybe a Keith Richards type. But, you know, even like kids that I, you know, that I knew that were in bands that toured, like, they, you know, destroys you that lifestyle. Oh, yeah. You. Absolutely. So listen, my show, sir, is all about psychedelics and weirdness. Um, I was hoping uh, for part of today's conversation, we could talk a little bit about what you're seeing and experiencing in New York now that you guys finally got legal weed. Yeah, um, I would love to talk about it, that. It only took forever. Uh, but let me let me set the stage for the audience so that they understand where you're coming from and where I'm coming from. So you, sir, have the credit of being the person uh, that has been my friend the longest in my life, uh, you and I have known each other for over 40 years. Yeah, that is true. That, that is, is that is fact. crazy. I have known you longer than my wife. I have <laughs> probably spoken to you for, for more than most of my other family members. I, we, we do have, and, and as far as friends that I'm still in contact with, like you're the oldest as well for me. Hmm. Um, and the good thing is we're both still here. So, hey, bonus. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and neither of us looks like Pete or Ozzy. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, gentle living as a, as a litigation attorney. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All of my uh, scars are internal. So <laughs> well, lawyering will do that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you have no idea. Oh, uh, but I do. <laughs> anyway, so so we've got 40 years of relationship. I left New York about 20 years ago, though. No, more than 20 years. Um, you know, graduated college, couldn't have gotten out of New York fast enough. Um, really never looked back, didn't regret it. 
Um, I applaud that you were able to stay there and enjoy it. I just, I didn't enjoy the, the New York lifestyle. Um, I was really meant for Hawaii, but I never quite got that far west. Yeah, well, I've had the pleasure of, of visiting you, uh, you know, a few years ago, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's a de- it's a different lifestyle uh, than New York for sure, um, and I like it too. I do like New York. There's a lot of things that I don't like about New York, yeah. and that make me sometimes question it. Um, but there is something special about the connection to things like music and film oh. that I'm so into that no argument, like, no, no yeah. argument. Uh, I'll tell you a true story. Um, early, early, early in my law career, I, um, got invited cause I had sent a resume over, uh, to DC comics. Um, and I got invited to go visit and their headquarters is in New York. Um, so I get, uh, to the building, go up the elevator. Um, very nice lawyer, by the way, who, who met with me, interviewed me, didn't get the job of course, but, um, you know, you can get access to stuff like that. And, and, and to really flesh out the DC Comics uh, interview experience, I get on the elevator. The elevator doors open on their floor. You're on the roof of, of, a, of a high-rise in Gotham City. The oh. reception area is dark. The reception desk looks like an air conditioner. There's some uh, bat signal buried in a corner somewhere in the oh, room. that's very cool, yeah. Uh, shooting a laser bat signal up. There's a full-blown Batmobile right there in the reception area. Um, so, you know, you get opportunities like that. You don't see that in Arizona. I'll tell you that much. No, uh, you don't, but you definitely don't go through a winter. Like we just went through this past one either, where we had the first real return of the Northeast. (laughs) Yeah. Winter in a few years, quite a few years. It is easier to shovel heat. I will tell you that. Yeah. Although I remember that trip where I, where I saw you, where Angie and I saw you. And I think it was about 116 around that time. And I just remember like trying to take a walk, like from the hotel we had stayed in to the, to like the mountains that seemed so close (laughs) and getting like 500 feet out and realizing it was not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's Las Vegas, uh, illusion. Like if you're trying to walk to another hotel on the strip and you think, oh, I can see it so plain as day, it's really close by. No, no, no. It's just really that big. And it's really that far away. (laughs) Parallax yeah. is a bitch. <laughs> no, yeah. So, but we learned. But, uh, but yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I hope to get out and visit you again. Not in the far future when all this travel resumes again. You are welcome here anytime. The guest room is always open to you. Perfect. Well, that's a plan right there. Yeah. So you're in a new world of legal cannabis. What does that feel like in New York? Well, you know what it feels like for me, and you know, there's two New Yorks, right? There's the white New York and the black New York. And, you know, marijuana has permeated the white New York as long as I can remember and the black one, but only black people were being punished for this in any significant way. So the, the first thing for me is to just celebrate the fact that one lever can no longer be utilized in this state for, uh, you know, for institutionally uh, demoralizing and punishing black people for their skin color. Amen. That's the biggest thing. Amen. We're, we're wrestling with that right now here in Arizona, our, uh, new recreational law. We, we passed during the uh, general election this last year, a recreational program that now rides sidecar to our medical program. And our new recreational program has a social equity component 
that like literally this week they're supposed to be getting the final rules of that program assembled. Um, but man, it's been contentious. Um, Arizona's had a really hard time ever acknowledging that it has a race problem too. And yeah. uh, just getting that across has been really kind of painful. Yeah. And, and I mean, I was shocked and, and, you know, maybe what led to this conversation is, you know, you and I were, 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 were texting and we were sort of, you know, and you said like, oh, you know, Cuomo's in trouble. And so he's doing these things. And I agree with you. Um, although he does seem to be, you know, exercising enough pressure and enough different fronts that he seems like he's going to walk through this whole thing. But I don't care what the impetus for the final piece was. I can only be thankful because you and I, you know, back in the 80s, we would, you know, even talk about stuff like this. And back in those days, you'd, you'd read in a magazine like High Times in the old days, and you'd say like, oh, man, like, you know, one day in 20 years or in 30 years, pot will be legal and things will be different. And that has a much different meaning now than it did to me uh, then, you know, because now it's so much easier to see what it's, what it does as uh, I mean, people smoke pot then people smoke pot. Now I know plenty of people who smoke pot. I know people who smoke it for medical reasons. I know people who smoke it for recreational reasons and they were just doing it the whole way through. So the idea that, I mean, from a social equity standpoint, but also from a, a, a destigmatization overall, this is way long overdue. And I was thrilled to see New York move so quickly after moving so slowly for so long. But I guess when the trigger gets pulled, the trigger finally gets pulled, whatever pulled it. Yeah, yeah. Um, gravity and momentum, man. Gravity and momentum. Yeah, for so sure. that's all timing. And timing is everything. And so if that's what left us here, and if things had been different last year, and we ha- hadn't ended up here where we are now, then I think that that's another silver lining, um, however it went down, because it's long, long overdue, and it's morally reprehensible to punish people for something that has no significant downside whatsoever. Uh, and, you know, and then let's not even talk about the, you know, the money that's spent incarcerating people in the first place uh, in states, you know, forget about what New York has done, but there's plenty of other states that now need to get on this bandwagon and stop this insanity for that reason alone and to take this criminal system and overhaul it, which I'm sure you have a lot to say about. Yeah, for sure. Well, hell, I live in Arizona where we have uh, private prisons. Yeah. Um, that needs to stop too. Like immediately. That needs to stop. I mean, by all means, tax, tax us, you know, like tax people. I'm all for that. I, I understand, you know, and there is regulate. I'd, I'd be interested to hear like, you know, coming from this in a sooner place, like how the regulation will play out here. I don't really even know how, what, what that means because medical marijuana here is only a real relatively recent occurrence. And so to go to like fully recreational, at the drop of a hat. Like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how that process works. Maybe yeah. you could illuminate me. Yeah. Um, well, using my home state of Arizona as the example, we have two wholly separate bodies of law that create two really technically wholly separate programs. We have got our medical law and we've got our recreational law. And while both programs have been deposited 
under the purview of the same regulatory agency. Here it happens to be the Department of Health Services. Um, they really are, for most purposes, separate. They've got some some connection in, in the regulations, but they really are separate. Um, New York's instance, if I didn't really follow it that closely because, well, I don't live there, so I didn't have to. Um, but I thought I understood that your, your medical program discouraged smoking. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I believe it discouraged smoking uh, and was limited to edibles and oil-based products is what I think. Yeah. Could, you could not buy flour, uh, I don't think. Or maybe I'm wrong about that, but yeah. That, I think that's, that, that doesn't seem to be the case recreationally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know the argument was, well, it's medical. Why would you encourage people to smoke medically? But it, weirdly enough, there are a number of um, inhalant medicines that you actually would want to inhale. Um, you know, yeah. is smoke your best choice? Probably not. You can vape and certainly avoid some of the byproducts of combustion that um, potentially could be uh, bad for your health. But yeah, there were a few states that when they engaged medical programs did exactly that. It was, you know, ingestible in a solid form only, you know, be it an oil or, you know, baked into something. Um, I don't know. I, I understand the ethos behind why people would want to look for restrictions, but ultimately it's it's a fool's errand. Yeah. Uh, I think the medicine has to be available in all of its form for whoever wants to take it, however they want to take it. Um, to the point where I have seen literally uh, like CBD and THC oil suppositories. So, you know, some people want to shove their weed up their ass. Who am I to say no? Yeah. Well, I know that I have spoken to people who have expressed to me that they don't feel comfortable taking, uh, you know, edible materials because it's less controllable, I guess, for them, how the effects play out. And, uh, you know, it can be uh, inconvenient, I guess, you know, inhaling it one way or the other, I guess, is going to be the quickest way to, you know, feel the effects and also to understand if you're maybe, you know, should like hold off and not overdo it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Inhalation gives you the ability to self-modulate. Um, yeah. Doing an edible, <laughs> you're you're committing to that edible wherever it goes. Yeah, you're you're yeah. going wherever you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. you know that that's where you know dosing is super important and having reliability. Um, but yeah, I've never, I personally never been a fan of edibles for exactly that because you don't really know where you're going to go. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you have some idea, but if you take too high a dose, you're going to be stuck with that for a while. Yeah. Yeah, and. I mean, I think if someone's doing this in a purely medicinal standpoint, probably, you know, inhaling it in some way is going to be the quickest way to just get some relief also, because there's a much longer lag time with edibles. I think that, um, you know, an inhaler is going to, you know, give you immediate response. And so yeah. you can sort of take it from there. Absolutely. By the way, it occurs to me, we're like 15 or so minutes into this conversation. And I'm being rude to my audience. I already know who you are. I haven't explained to my audience who you are, and I think they're entitled to that. So, all right, go um, for it. So, uh, besides you being my my oldest uh, and dearest friend, um, you also head up a really novel charity organization called Charity. Well, we're not a charity. We're actually a digital marketing platform that does work with some charities, but we yeah. also work with brands and movements and political organizations. Ah, okay. So you have expanded beyond. Last time I spoke with you on this, you were you were still in the charity space exclusively. So um, now you're much broader. So tell you what, I'm learning something today too. So let me turn the mic over to you, buddy. Why don't you tell us what you do? 
Sure, I'll tell you what I do. Yeah. Um, so my uh, my wife, Angela, and I founded this company six years ago. And Charity is a digital marketing platform that uh, enables brands and movements and nonprofits to harness their community in a way uh, where they can give them a very transactional way to participate in supporting a cause or standing up for an action or saying, you know, I pledge to do this, I'm going to register to vote or I'm going to vote or I support this, uh, you know, or I support Save the Children, who's one of our customers, for example. Um, and add a photo to a branded frame that can then be shared in social media through a moderated process that provides a number of data points to our customers. It includes email, lead gen, and uh, a license to use the photographic content. So it's really a way to fill the funnel of sort of top level people who'd be interested in doing something, giving them a way to activate and then allowing their friends to join from them as well. And so our campaigns will, you know, sometimes grow very large from people joining from their friends. So for example, we did the United Nations 75th anniversary campaign and we had 142,000 people around the globe join that campaign in 10 different languages. 22,000 of those people joined from the UN's own promotion of the campaign. The other 120,000 joined from those people. And that's where our platform becomes very valuable to you know, organizations and brands who want to find more people like the ones they're already talking to, give them a very simple thing to do that has no real barrier of entry, no cost, no signups, no apps, and then sort of benefit from that digital marketing that happens in social media, but not on the side that's usually visible. You know, we engage people in private content. Uh, and that's what makes it so powerful and so highly referential. That's quite a reach. So you're, you are legitimately global and, and you're touching hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people through these activities. We absolutely are. We, we, we calculated that in the 2020 presidential election, we touched something like four or 5 million people, uh, from various organizations that we worked with that included, you know, fantastic groups uh, like the New Virginia Majority, who's one of our most valued customers, Democrats.com, uh, Color Change, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is one of our customers, uh, Moms Rising, Boat Riders, you know, just people who were really sharing a call to action that they were going to vote or that they were going to register to vote or that they were going to support a specific uh, element, you know, in the election. Um, and then we make those activations available and we help uh, some of our customers promote them. Some do it on their own. And then they kind of bring in the data. And so for us, it was super exciting to say, you know, we, we, we worked in Virginia in the 2019 state election where, you know, uh, the state was put blue, uh, the state house and Senate, you know, this was a big change yeah. and that helped set our relevance in this space after working in a nonprofit charity space for so long, um, with political organizations. And that led to, you know, what we did this year or last year in the election. So it was incredible to be a part of that and to, you know, get to on a national scale, uh, you know, support that kind of messaging. And then, you know, the work we do with the UN, 
and some other big groups on the global scale is very gratifying as well to get, you know, the campaign we did with the UN, among other things, uh, you know, allowed people to express a sentiment that was meaningful to them that was part of the UN's charter. And 65% of people uh, who joined this campaign chose human rights as that sentiment that they wanted to attach to a frame with their photo in it. And that seems obvious in 2020, you know, that that would have been the case. But it's also really interesting to see how that played out against other terms like justice um, and what really captures people's, uh, you know, minds when they want to participate in something like this. So, yeah, it's awesome for us. It's been very good. Yeah, that sounds sounds really amazing and also incredibly rewarding. I mean, of all the career paths one could have taken. I mean, this is so impactful. I didn't know this was where I was going. It I I worked in technology obviously for my whole career and I worked in creative endeavors as well and I worked for a nonprofit, you know, a very large national nonprofit starting uh 20 years ago and so I guess I was gathering information about, you know, where there was a, an opportunity to bring something new. When, when I met my wife uh, at that job, you know, she and I collaborated on this idea of bringing a, uh, a very transactional way for people to show support for the causes they care about, not where you had to download some app and not where you had to identify yourself if you didn't want to, but something much more optional in terms of data and much uh, more transactional in terms of participation. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. And then six years ago, we left that organization and they became one of our customers among many others over the next six years. And we've kind of built this up. And what's super exciting for us, and we're here to talk about other things, but I will just say that we are about to, so we've been doing this for quite a while and we have uh, a number of large organizations that hire us to do this and use our platform. We are about to debut a small customer version of our platform that has a couple of different tiers, including a fully free version. And so uh, that's not going to have all the bells and whistles and functions that our larger customers use, but it is going to be a way for any group to start to get the benefits of the social reach uh, and community building and lead gen that we provide and have that for their you know, smaller groups. So mm-hmm. we're really excited. That's going to be launching next month. And we're in the midst of a whole sort of redo of our website and our marketing as we as we gear up for that. So it's good, good, good times. Yeah, um, I can relate to a lot of that. And indeed, I am um, in the midst of having the Psychedelic Alex website finally properly created as opposed to the garbage do-it-yourself template that I threw up a year ago. Um Along those lines, man, everything you've just been describing is, <laughs> I have a sneaking suspicion you and I are going to be having our lines diverge again professionally. Um, so let me tie this conversation back to the topic du jour of psychedelics. So one of the kooky ideas I've come up with over the last year came about really as a, a probably more a result of the last election. Um, In the general election around the country, we, of course, had a contentious presidential race, but also in at least seven different jurisdictions, there were initiatives that were running based on drugs. We saw, for example, Oregon had two, one which just straight up decriminalized all drugs uh, and the other which created uh, a yet to be formed psilocybin program. They're working on the rules and they've got two years to get that working. Um, Meanwhile, uh, you know, different cities around uh, the country and even uh, the District of Columbia had uh, pro-drug 
initiatives. Um, D.C., for example, passed an initiative that deprioritizes law enforcement for drugs. Um, uh-huh. I, I hear online people saying, oh, yeah, D.C. decriminalized. No, it did not decriminalize. It deprioritized. There's a yeah. massive difference, and you'll be able to tell that difference while the police officer is putting handcuffs on you. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the difference is stay at home versus, you know, being out on the street. Yeah. Uh, you will learn that difference. But anyway, drugs did really well. I mean, to the point where drugs did better than either presidential candidate. So the last election, who won? Uh, maybe Biden, but really drugs. Um, yeah. So I thought, you know, look, the country is opening up to this. We have several companies right now that have um, fast-tracked approval from FDA for both psilocybin and MDMA. Uh, they are knocking on phase three studies. So I'm thinking within like eh, two, maybe four years on the outside, we're going to see legitimately FDA approved psychedelics on the menu. Um, in the meantime, psychedelics are becoming way more popular on their own. They always were popular, but now the interest is turning towards them. And I think that uh, use is up, interest is up. And as these licit substances finally switch on, um, there's just going to be a, a flood of interest. And not everybody's going to be able to afford it or partake through the licit channels. So knowing this, I thought, why not have states formulate some sort of state-level body of law that is not dependent on FDA approval for the natural stuff, the, you know, the traditional entheogens, the mushrooms, the, the, the ayahuascas of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have this harebrained idea of this Uniform Plant and Fungi Medicine Act, which, um, if it's drafted, would serve as a model body of law that literally any legislature could pick up, dust off, and run uh, and, and act through their legislature, or any political campaign in, in the 14 states that permit public initiatives to run, any political campaign could grab this off the shelf and run it. And the reason for the uniformity in particular is all these little popcorn initiatives that have popped up around the country, none of them have anything in common. There's no opportunity to stitch them together, reciprocity, have things correlate and have similar experience one place or another. So, yeah, templatized and all yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So a uniform act that has all the bells and whistles baked in uh, could be easy to implement across a number of states and have it be rather harmonious and well-regulated. Because uh, I'm not in the camp of people who believes, let's just decriminalize and deregulate everything and just trust that people will figure it out. Because I don't think they will. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more about that. That would, that would lead to a lot. It's very interesting uh, I do think there's some interesting opportunities there. I'll tell you what we're doing in the state of Washington right now. So we're working uh, on. Are you on the right to try campaign? No, we're on the no. We're actually on the restart Washington campaign, which is the vaxing and masking and restarting small business campaign. So mm. we're running that right now with them, uh, and that's you know a template that we use for that type of informational. Type, you know, so there's like two things that we do in that. We do stuff in the advocacy space where we use what we call our photo petition template, which has the photo, but also has some of the more traditional elements and can be used in advocacy, um, but in a much more sort of visual and enjoyable way for people, especially when it's a colorful cause, which this is, you know, this is sort of that. Yeah. Um, so there might be some really cool ways that as you move that forward and, and you do provide that template, 
you know, there might be some options for ways to uh, promote that for people. So yeah, we, we, we could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Because one, one of the things I have to overcome, I've got a number of folks who want to work on drafting the petition with me, including people who worked on the Oregon Initiative and people who worked on the Denver Initiative. They've already got the experience and clearly the skill set, and they're some of the smartest people on these topics in the country. Um, so my next challenge is figuring out how to pay them. Because <laughs> nobody's, nobody's going to sponsor the drafting because a, a model act on its own is just paper on a desk. Um it's when you actually engage it in the campaign that people want to throw cash at it. So I'm trying to figure out how to convince people to throw cash at creating the model. Yeah. Are you going to do that as a nonprofit? Like, would this be something like, how would you structure such a thing? Um, yeah, I think the drafting entity, so to speak, would be nonprofit because what profit is there to be made on this endeavor? You can't no, sell it. So yeah, that's, that would be a, a throwaway, so to speak. Um, even the campaigns that would run would necessarily I suppose need to be nonprofit because they're political campaigns that would be running this thing to try to get it enacted. Um, I think the money to be made is on the opposite side. If, if you get an act that passes that, for example, creates um, something like an Oregon type psilocybin program, well, that's going to create business opportunities because somebody's going to have to build those psilocybin centers. Somebody's yeah. going to have to staff them. Somebody's going to have to cultivate those mushrooms. Um, that's where the money is. Um, but not on the front end. I think the crafting of it and promoting it, you know, you got to get people who are just willing to try to have a long vision and see beyond that horizon. Yeah. Well, maybe there's some opportunities to, right. To get that funded by some of the same people that would invest in the infrastructure. Yeah. Knowing the opportunity was there and to take that as a sort of secondary marketing approach. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is cool that you're plugged in. So I, I am pretty confident over the next year, you and I are going to be having some conversations about this. Yeah, I would love to help you with it. I mean, it's an area that we do a lot of work in. You know, we work in the Black Power Building space and we work in, you know, uh, incarceration and, uh, you know, we've done a lot of rent relief stuff during COVID. Yeah. So, you know, major issues that are affecting, uh, you know, certain communities uh, that, you know, this needs to be done. Um, you know, working with some groups that, uh, you know, are trying to rectify the biggest problems that we have in society right now. <laughs> you know, and it, it, it's, uh, I think that there's a value to what we do that goes beyond marketing because we take a message that, comes from an entity at first we give it to individuals and then when the individual puts their face with the message it becomes a much stronger uh it's not just amplifying it it's turning it into a personal reference and that is what allows it to become a a, a method for positive peer pressure yeah. that can you know get people to do something as a group so Sounds like it's right up the alley of what you're thinking about. Absolutely. And I, I love that you use the phrase positive peer pressure because that, that really is what it is. You're building yeah, community, but by a, like a good sense of shame. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. So actually, uh, one of the co-directors of the New Virginia Majority, who's one of our, our valued, you know, very valued customers, uh, Tran Wen, she's the first person who ever said that to me. And, and she was saying how, how well it worked for for, for that organization. She said, yeah, it creates a, a wave of positive peer pressure and it's coming from the voices of the individual. Uh, and that's what makes this stronger. So 
Um, it's one thing to say a message once. It's another thing to see it from your friends. It's still another thing to see it from three or four of your friends. Yeah. And that is where you can turn someone from a no to a yes. Um, so, yeah. And I, I look forward to sort of expanding our horizons at, you know, to other causes that, that could benefit from this. And this, this would be a great one. Interesting. Yeah. You're cajoling people to tap into their inner good guy and let it shine. We are for purpose. We only work on for purpose campaigns at this time. So even if we work with a brand, it's usually in support of something that they want to show in their corporate social responsibility or their diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, and when we work with a nonprofit, it's sort of the same thing, but on the cost marketing side, you know, we don't do just straight ahead marketing at this time, although we've had chatted about it. <laughs> Maybe soon <laughs> without giving too much away. Fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. Yeah. All right. So um, we talked a little bit about cannabis in New York and the recent changes. Um, assuming you've got your ear to the ground at all on any of this, what's the word on psychedelics in New York? Are people interested in it? Are they talking about it? Is it part of um, outward conversation like at a Starbucks? Do you hear people you know, interested in this at all? Well, I do hear a little bit of talk about it. And I do have some friends who talk to me about psychedelics and who talk about mushrooms and who talk about, uh, have a question about psychedelics and the law. You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank mm -hmm. you.